Producing enough food for 7.5 billion people is challenging even in normal times. And recent years have been anything but normal. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told Fox News Business up to one million calves have been killed in Iowa and Nebraska alone after historic flooding devastated the Midwest. Epic flooding one year, historic droughts another. This drought affecting the Midwestern states right now could be the worst in 50 years. The damage is particularly devastating for farmers whose farm and ranch losses are expected to be in the billions. And then there are other climate-related hazards like wildfires. We watched yesterday afternoon from Sky 8 as flames raced through dry wheat fields, almost seeming to dance in the perfect fuel pushed by a strong and steady wind. My name is Katherine Rehimaki, and my guest today is Susie Friedman. She's the Senior Director for Agricultural Sustainability with the Environmental Defense Fund. She works with farmers across the U.S. on issues like helping farmers become more resilient to climate change and extreme weather events. Susie, welcome to All for Earth. Thank you. So farmers have this very interesting uh, relationship with the environment. Um, on the one hand, their suffering during extreme weather events is very visible, um, but they also impact the environment. When you talk about sustainable agriculture, you're not talking about small-scale organic farming, the people who are maybe selling at farmers markets. What you're talking about are corn, wheat, soy, um, but really doing that at a large scale. Um, and, and these are ultimately products that we're buying at the grocery store. Is that right? That is right. And you know, there um, there's a lot of us versus them and this is good and that's not that ends up coming into the, the agriculture and food conversation that that really just gets in the way and isn't necessary. There's a, a role and a place and a value to all kinds of agriculture. And there's, um, I love going to my local farmer's market and there are a lot of great things about buying organic and we all need fruits and vegetables. <laughs> but when you think about our food system at scale, corn and wheat and soybeans are the building blocks. They're in just about everything. They feed the animals that are a significant part of our food system. They dominate the landscape. And so while local food systems are great, and that's where, especially for fresh fruits and vegetables, that's a really important thing. Right. When we're talking about sustainability at scale that is going to impact the climate, impact our water quality and water quantity at scale, that's the the agriculture that has the biggest footprint and so that's commodity crop agriculture and so that's where we really need to collaborate and partner and find the ways that are going to work and sustain those sectors economically and find the ways to make that sustainable at scale you know i want to come back to sort of this us versus them mindset um in just a moment because i think uh you know, the collaborations that you've developed um, are really interesting in kind of breaking that down. Um, but I want to really um, get to the heart of what resilience looks like when it comes to um, agriculture and extreme weather events. Yeah, you know, there there are a lot of aspects to it, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not easy. You know, the agriculture has you know they it 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 really covers the Midwest part of the country in particular, and there are a lot of communities there. And so, how that landscape is used can play an enormously beneficial role for smaller scale floods and how those um, how those floods affect their communities. You know, it can really provide enormous benefit to mitigating those smaller scale floods. 
kids, and so we can really take advantage of that enormous opportunity. So it's so it, I want to I want to interrupt for just a sure. second. So you're saying basically that the way that the farmers are using their land can help improve flooding that is downstream. Right, they can help mitigate those floods downstream. So there, there's just great opportunities to look at this landscape in a much more integrated way. So the, you know, it's resilience for the farmers themselves, and are they going to be profitable, and can they sustain their own livelihoods, but also water quality downstream and flood and drought impacts for their broader community. So that's why it's, it's really important to look at the landscape from an integrated perspective, from a you know hydrological perspective, but also we really all need to work at this together. And there are just enormous opportunities to not only save money from looking at natural infrastructure opportunities, but also just do it collaboratively and avoid fights. So what do you encounter as the bottlenecks for this work? Is it the um, lack of information that gets to farmers about what best practices are for uh, sustainable agriculture? Or is it that they don't have access to the appropriate technology to even document what they're doing? Or is it some other aspect of the, the system? You know, it's a variety of things. It is, information is definitely one of them, and um, having access to the information about what the options are. It's also um, being able to have the um, the time and the coordination to look at things at a watershed scale and be able to collect, to look at those options collectively, um, because it's no longer looking at things individually. And a lot of our policies around agriculture drive towards individual actions. There's a lot of programs that encourage, you know, there there are programs that, you know, farmers sign up individually. There are very few of our ag policies that encourage collective action or even allow it. The data is farm by farm, the responses are farm by farm, so we also need more policy options that allow groups of farmers or communities to look at and advance solutions collectively. You know, I want to think a little bit about some of the other um, aspects of sustainable agriculture that you work on. You mentioned uh, fertilizer runoff and water pollution. Um, Is that one of the other major areas of work for EDF and for yourself? Yeah, you know, we work on, you know, there's, there's a farming is a system. And so um, I'd say, you know, we look at the, the system of farming, that collection of practices in terms of how they manage um, their fertilizer, uh, their soils, um, their tillage, uh, their edge of field practices, and that collection of practices will impact the quality of the water that leaves their farm, the quality of their soils and how it sustains their yields, as well as um, what comes off their farms in terms of emissions into the air. And all of those things interact. Um, and so while, yes, we do work on fertilizer and how that impacts both water quality and air, We really don't like to look at it in isolation because how they manage their fertilizer is very tied up in how they, you know, are they doing cover crops? How are they managing their tillage? What is their crop rotation? All of those things tie together um, and influence each other. Got it. And so it seems like you guys are looking for the epitomes of win-win situations. Exactly. Yep. 
Yep, make it good for them, good for their business, help them meet their needs, and improve what's happening on the ground. You guys also work on um, habitat protection as we part do. of this. And do you have win-wins there? Because sometimes it's portrayed as real trade-offs between agriculture, land versus natural habitat. You know, I think that there are a lot of win-wins. One of um, EDF's big priorities on the habitat front right now is saving the monarch butterfly, which has the monarch butterfly numbers have declined by some 90%. And one of its, um, you know, its, its big flyways goes from Mexico up through the Midwest of the United States, and then it also has a flyway up through California. Yep. Um, and so agriculture, agricultural lands are are going to be critical if we are going to save this species. And so collaborating with corn and wheat and soybean farmers, particularly in that Midwestern flyway, it's the way to go. It's it's exactly what we need to do. And we have found that farmers are, are really eager to do this. If we can collaborate and get some assistance, they are very eager to um, help save this species. And there are some trade-offs, but especially with this species, they love little patches of habitat all over the place. So planting monarch habitat around barns, along fences, in little patches um, that aren't in production around the, around the farm um, can really get the job done. Um, and actually the biggest challenge is that um, the seed for um, milkweed and other nectar plants for monarch habitat is expensive. And so that's where we really try to find the um, the funding and bring resources to the farmers to be able to cover that that part. Um, and the farmers are are really stepping up to the plate to plant this habitat on their on their farms. They're not saying, pay me. They're just saying, can you help cover the cost of the seed? And it's interesting because monarchs are not pollinators, right? So this isn't right. necessarily in their business interest. This is sort of them, I, I don't know if it's a, a morality issue that they want to protect the species that is um, beautiful, but even though it's not really contributing to their business operations. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've um, had a lot of conversations with farmers about this very issue. And, and there's a lot of work um, by farmers on bees and other um, pollinators as right. well. And so there's a lot of work on that front as well. But with the monarchs, you know, as one, one farmer I was talking to, a um, really wonderful farm advisor that we do a ton of work with who um, has a farm in Minnesota and has planted monarch habitat. And she said, you know, Every farmer has a monarch story from their childhood <laughs> before the really steep decline happened. And, and it, it, it is very nostalgic and it has a wonderful place in their heart and every farmer has one. And so it's a great opportunity to bring that back. And so if, um, you know, for, for a little bit of their land, if we can get some help with the cost of that seed, they can bring that back. You know, that's a great segue for us to just talk about this kind of breaking down of the us versus them mindset that we um, mentioned earlier. Uh, farmers are in this very unique position of being witnesses to 
uh, environmental change and really being sensitive to that as well because their livelihood depends on having a healthy environment in which they can grow their plants. Um, Is that how you have been able to make um, these connections with them? And how have you managed to build trust um, across what has in some respects seemed like a big divide, environmentalists versus farmers or environmentalists versus big business? Exactly. You know, I've, I've found that those barriers actually are very easy to break down. There's a lot of there's a lot of assuming that goes on. Mm-hmm. You know, when I walk into a room, whether it's with a couple of farmers or a lot of farmers, if they don't know me yet and all they know is the name of the organization that I work with, they often assume that I'm going to walk in the room and be accusing them or assuming that they are bad actors Mm -hmm. or trying to harm the environment or that all they care about is making as much yield as they can and they don't care about what the impacts to the environment are and that I'm assuming they're bad stewards of the land. And so they're defensive. They're coming in in a defensive position. And so I have found that one of the most important things that I can do is really explain That's not what I'm thinking, that my assumption is that they're doing the very best they can to take care of the land because it is their livelihood and that they're operating with the information that they have and doing the best that they can under very difficult weather and very difficult economic times and that the more we can collaborate, the further we can go and the more we can get done. And it just opens up a lot of doors. Are there doors that you or the Environmental Defense Fund are willing to go through that other environmental groups aren't? So I don't know how often other environmental groups are even knocking on those doors. Um, I think a lot of them don't, though. And I think we could get a lot more done if more of them did, because I have found it to be very rewarding and very successful. And it's also just really fun to get out there. (laughs) Uh, Who are some of the other uh, corporate groups that you work with um, that people might be surprised to see an environmental group kind of uh, having productive collaborations with? So this is something that has become kind of trademark for EDF. Um, Back in the 80s, um, there was a big aha moment for EDF. Uh, when we had our first big corporate partnership with McDonald's, working with them to help address one of their land waste issues around their styrofoam clamshells. And it was a uh, a big wake-up call to us when we realized how big um, a business opportunity it could be to help a company uh, save money and uh, reduce environmental impact at the same time when we worked with them to replace the clamshells with, with paper. And McDonald's saved a ton of money and um, did a great thing environmentally. Um, and so we've gone on to do a lot of corporate partnerships and have an entire program called EDF Plus Business. Um, and so EDF is working with with corporations across um, a lot of all of our different programs. But in agriculture, um, we're working with Smithfield Foods, 
We're also working with Tyson Foods also on um, feed grain sustainability and a number of different issues. We're working with Campbell's Soup. We do work on um, sustainability with Walmart. So those are a number of them. We also have an initiative focused on um, training the advisors that a lot of farmers work with, um, ag retailers and crop consultants. And in that, we're partnering with the Ag Retailers Association, Field to Market, and American Society of Agronomy. So we're, we're working on that in a number of different arenas. How do you respond to people who might say about McDonald's, you know, we shouldn't be helping them make more money? Um, or in, in the case of food, you know, Michael Pollan is one person who has mentioned uh, that we grow too much corn in this country. And here you are collaborating with corn growers to help them be more successful. Um, so how do you sort of counter those negative arguments? Yeah, and I can understand where people who, who have those uh, perspectives come from, um, and everyone is is entitled <laughs> to their to their perspective. And so I, I am definitely willing to to discuss. But I, I my perspective is that this is the reality that we're we're living in, and there may be a world someday that doesn't have a Walmart or doesn't have corn, but I, you know, honestly don't see that happening. Um, And so I think that there is enormous value, and I think it's really been proven out, to try to generate as much environmental improvement through collaboration with these actors who have scale, because I think that's really how we can make environmental impact at scale is by working with those who have scale. It's just <laughs> okay. kind of fundamental. <laughs> it's, it's basic math. And so um, if we want to um, you know, make further progress um, on uh, the environmental impact um, and generate further improvement with the you know, 80, 90 million acres of corn grown in the U.S. every year, best place to do that is by working with the National Corn Growers Association. And so we now have a um, a really comprehensive, significant partnership with them. And it's honestly one of the most fun partnerships I've ever had. And, uh, you know, if you want to influence the supply chain at scale, work with the big buyers and the big um, the big companies. So th- I know that there are going to always be those that disagree with that. And uh, it takes all kinds to make <laughs> progress. And so um, those that disagree, you know, um, that's fine. And you'll have your strategy and go forth and be merry. But I think, you know, I think I really like EDF's approach. And I think it has impact and value. And I think we've proven that out. And that's why I've stuck around here for over 18 years. Um, I want to finish our conversation just by thinking about what the future of agriculture looks like. Um, Human population is heading towards maybe 9 billion people worldwide. Um, I love how optimistic you sound, and so I'm wondering if you're optimistic that we can feed so many people without completely trashing the environment. I am. One, I think we have to be. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that fundamentally, I think... We have an unbelievable ability to innovate and find ways to do things better and adapt to the realities that we're faced with. And I think we have seen that in agriculture again and again, and I think we're seeing it now. We're seeing an incredible wave of innovation in technology. 
And for a long time, that technological innovation was really focused on how to maximize yield. And we're seeing that technological innovation shift towards how to manage that productivity in the face of more extreme weather, how to be more sustainable, how to manage nutrients much more precisely, how to map you know, every square foot of the field to be more efficient across all of the inputs, how to you know, map the soil. And, and reduce environmental impact. Um, so I really do think that um, we're going to find the ways to produce and be more sustainable and efficient. Um, we're also, you know, seeing ways, you know, how can things be shared across the, um, across agriculture? We can have, you know, an agricultural gig economy where we can have these amazing innovations that can be shared across multiple farmers. So I think we are going to get there. You know, there are probably big shifts, there's probably going to be some big disruptions ahead of us that we don't know what those are yet. But I'm confident that uh, we're going to have a lot of smart people who can figure it out. Including hopefully you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can I hope I can help contribute some things. And I think a big part of that is we need farmers at the table and we need to give them the opportunity to have access to technological innovations and um, have them helping us figure it out. Well, Susie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'll be thinking about you and your farmer colleagues as I shop at the grocery store. Um, good luck with all of your work. I will. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been fun. Susie Friedman works for the Environmental Defense Fund as the Senior Director for Agricultural Sustainability. You can follow her on Twitter at Friedman Susie. That's F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N-S-U-Z-Y. And you can learn more about the Environmental Defense Fund at www.edf.org. Please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.